I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This episode includes brief discussions about the sexual abuse of a child, as well as suicide. Please take care before listening. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. It was a Tuesday night at the Chuck E. Cheese in Aurora, Colorado, and the staff was eager to head home. A child's birthday party had stayed late delaying the small crew's evening responsibilities until the last possible minute. 50-year-old Margaret Kohlberg counted the day's receipts in the back of the office while her much younger colleagues handled cleanup duties. Sylvia Kroll, 19, at the salad bar. Ben Grant, 17, vacuuming up pizza crumbs near the arcade. Colleen O'Connor, also 17, tidying up the quiet room for adults and 20-year-old Bobby Stevens scrubbing dishes in the kitchen. The teens toiled away amid a cacophony of sound, the whirring of mechanized cartoon characters, the dinging of a nearby row of skee-ball machines, the rattling of the token dispenser, the high-pitched whining of Ben's vacuum. It was so loud that they never heard the shooter coming. Emerging from the bathroom, toting a 25 caliber Smith & Wesson, the armed man worked with laser-like precision. He approached Sylvia first, extinguishing her life with a single bullet to the left side of her head. Next came Ben, whose vacuum had prevented him from hearing the first shot. The projectile from the shooter's gun passed through his eye and lodged in his brain, killing him instantly. Colleen, trembling and defenseless, had the misfortune of seeing her killer coming. 
The curly-haired college student raised her hands, sank to her knees, and begged him not to shoot, promising not to tell anyone what she'd seen. I have to, the shooter replied, before pulling the trigger a third time, dropping her with a shot to the temple. From the back, Bobby heard the loud bangs, but assumed it was Colleen and Sylvia popping leftover party balloons. As the killer entered the kitchen, the young dishwasher was so confused, he looked up and said, Hello, just in time to see the flash of a gun and feel the piercing shot pass through his jaw. Only Margaret remained. The masked intruder, wearing a baseball cap, a jacket, and gloves with holes cut out at the knuckles, pointed his weapon at her and demanded that she open the safe. Margaret complied, only it didn't matter. The last words she heard were, thank you. He shot her once in the ear and then again in the head before filling his bag with game tokens, keychains, cards, and cash. The shooter's total haul? Less than $1,600. The whole manic episode lasted less than five minutes. Most shocking, the mass murderer was only 19 years old. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I explore the case of the Chuck E. Cheese shooting victims Margaret Kohlberg, Sylvia Kroll, Ben Grant, and Colleen O'Connor. Aurora, Colorado has long lived in the shadow of its big brother to the West. Yet, for all its notoriety, Denver is actually the smaller of the two cities, at least by landmass. The Rocky Mountain State's third most populous city, Aurora is home to nearly 400,000 people. Its size is a testament to the rapid growth the region has experienced in the last decade, as families have fled east from California, north from Texas, and west from New York. The only thing growing faster than the population the cost of housing, with the median home now going for around $500,000. Aurora's history dates back to 1891, when local businessman Nelson Fletcher sought to create a place for young families on the vast plains that lie to Denver's east. Fletcher's high hopes were quickly dashed. A terrible drought, followed by the Silver Panic of 1893, caused property values to plummet. While many of the city's pioneering families left, the few that stuck around renamed the town Aurora in 1907 and incorporated in 1928. After expanding slowly for many decades, Aurora was one of America's fastest-growing cities in the 1970s and 80s. Yet, even in the present, much of its furthest reaches remain undeveloped, which is how some locals hope it'll stay. Aurora's reputation as a military-friendly community started during the First World War, when the army erected a large hospital east of town. Two decades later, in 1938, with war again raging in Europe, the federal government built Lowry Air Force Base to the south. Lowry later became Buckley Air Force Base, and more recently, 
Buckley Space Force Base, home of the Buckley Garrison and the 140th Wing Colorado Air National Guard, the military installation is Aurora's largest employer. Today, the city's growth remains largely a function of its proximity to Denver, the commercial hub of the Mountain West. While largely middle class, Aurora boasts a diverse population and a vibrant cultural scene. Its schools are among the best in the state, which makes it a draw for young families. And yet, the tree-lined streets and pristine parks belie a disturbing association with mass killings. In 2012, a shooting during a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises left 12 people dead and dozens more injured. In 2018, a gunman opened fire at a Walmart, killing three people, and in 2019, five people were shot dead in an Aurora apartment complex. These deadly incidents have had a profound impact on the community. They've led to increased efforts to address gun violence in the city and across the U.S. This disturbing pattern of gun violence in Aurora all began with the Chuck E. Cheese massacre on December 14, 1993. As a mom to two spoiled dogs, I feel like it's my responsibility to give them the best life possible because they give so much to me. Like me, you might be feeding your dog's kibble recommended by a vet or have them on a fresh food diet. But did you know these are often low in protein, high in carbs, and are the leading cause of weight, mobility, dental, and skin conditions? Yeah, I didn't know that either, but that's where Maeve comes in. When I discovered Maeve, I was so impressed with how they educate you on how to maintain your dog's health rather than just slapping a label on the product that says good for dogs like other kibble. You see, dogs are biologically primed to digest and absorb key nutrients from an unprocessed, low-carb, high-protein diet. Dogs thrive on unprocessed, high-protein, low-carb diets that kibble and fresh foods just don't deliver. Luckily, Maeve's raw food diet is formulated to actually meet your dog's needs. Maeve is a protein-rich raw dog food that's just as easy as kibble, but it's made with seven essential health benefits, including gut health, immune function, oral hygiene, skin and coat health, hip and joint health, mental health and anxiety, and growth and early development. Maeve supports benefits you can smell, feel, and see from better breath and reduced itching, to less shedding and regular bowel movements, as well as healthy weight maintenance. And most dog parents see results in 28 days or less. Plus, one of my favorite things about Maeve is that there's no mess, no prep, and no thawing. Just open, pour, and serve. It's that easy. Look, I'm a dog mom, a human mom, a wife, and a business owner, so I have a lot of people relying on me. And if I want to give my best to everyone, then I have to make things easier and more convenient for me. Luckily, with Maeve, I'm able to easily give my dogs their favorite foods every single day. It's no wonder people love Maeve just as much as I do. They have over a thousand five-star reviews. More importantly, dogs love it too. Even those notorious picky eaters. Make the switch to Raw today. Right now, Maeve is offering $40 off your first order at meetmave.com slash murderish. 
go to meetmave.com slash murderish. That's spelled M-E-E-T-M-A-E-V to receive $40 off your first order. That's meetmave.com slash murderish. The Chuck E. Cheese on East Iliff Avenue in Aurora had for years been a popular place of employment for area teens hoping to make an easy buck. They enjoyed the flexible hours and relatively light workload, not to mention perks like discounted tokens and half-priced pizza. Most only spent a few months there, trying to earn money for one purpose or another, before heading off to college or trade school. For Bobby Stevens, the lone survivor of the killing spree, that purpose was a seven-month-old baby boy. He wasn't on the schedule the night of the shooting. Instead, Bobby stopped in to ask for extra hours. Christmas was right around the corner, and he wanted to give his infant son and the child's mother a proper holiday. The manager obliged and sent Bobby to the back to wash dishes. It wasn't glamorous, but Bobby preferred scrubbing pans to dealing with demanding parents and screaming kids. The monotonous task allowed the young father to let his mind drift to a faraway place, with thoughts of making a better life somewhere far away from Chuck E. Cheese. Bobby said to the Colorado Sun in 2019, Every time I seem to move on with my life, I move past everything. It's in the back of my mind because you can never really truly forget. Shift manager Sylvia Kroll was balancing a full-time work schedule and classes at Metro State College in Denver. The attractive blonde was studying psychology and needed the job to pay off her car, a gold-colored Ford Tempo. The day of the shooting, she'd gone shopping with her best friend and co-worker, Carol Rickens, before they'd clocked in for the night shift. Carol left just moments before the shooting began, shouting, I love you, to Sylvia, as she headed out the door and into the cold Colorado night. Jennifer Wood, a high school friend, told the Denver Post that Sylvia, a devout Mormon, was a forgiving person who attended church faithfully. Wood went on to say about Sylvia, she was never afraid of dying. Friends described Sylvia as fun-loving and good-natured, innocent but not uptight. She liked to dance at hip-hop clubs and attend laser shows in the park. There was a serious side to her as well. Besides her devout faith, she was a member of Students Against Drunk Driving. Nearly two decades after the massacre, Bob Kroll, Sylvia's father, told ABC News, We have missed her terribly, and we just wonder why somebody would do that. She hadn't done anything to hurt anybody. Bob said of his wife, Marjorie, Sylvia's mother, She thinks about her every day, and that's not something that'll go away. Ben Grant was in his junior year at Aurora's Smoky Hills High School when he applied to work at Chuck E. Cheese as a game attendant just three weeks before the massacre. His teammates from the wrestling squad laughed at him when he got the job, but he told his parents he enjoyed the responsibility. Ben wore thick glasses and was slow to warm up to strangers, but when he did make a connection, friends said, he loved to goof around and play practical jokes. A native of Crawfordsville, Indiana, Ben had three brothers, one half-brother and four half-sisters, 
classmate, B.J. Benier, described Ben as a friend to everybody. Ben had hoped to put his Chuck E. Cheese earnings into a Sega Genesis gaming console. Victim Colleen O'Connor was an overachiever to the end. The 17-year-old waitress was in her senior year at Eagle Crest High School, where she was enrolled in eight classes, including one that sent her to elementary schools to tutor children. Before taking the job at Chuck E. Cheese, she'd decided to become a vegetarian, writing in her diary that she always knew it was wrong to eat dead animals. Friends described Colleen as fun, likable, popular, and well-known at the school. She was talkative and always had a story to tell. Margaret Kohlberg, the oldest of the victims, had worked as an assistant manager at the Family Fun Center for six weeks prior to the shooting. A native of Colorado, she and her husband Mel had moved back in September of 1993 from Pasadena, just a few months before the deadly shooting. Mel Kohlberg said to the Denver Post, We left California because of what it had become with the violence, the randomness, and the senselessness of what was going on there. We wanted to come back home to the simple life. We made it four years out there, and we couldn't make it four months out here. There's some irony in there. The couple, married for 17 years, took aerobic fitness classes together and loved to escape to the outdoors. Having grown up in the Rocky Mountains, Margaret particularly liked cycling and cross-country skiing. Mel described his wife as full of love and caring for all people. The mother of two daughters in their 20s was also like a mother to her staff of teenage workers at Chuck E. Cheese. Mel said about his wife, In the very few short weeks that she was employed at the restaurant, I know that she developed some very strong relationships with the people there. They respected her and admired her for what she could contribute. The night of the shooting spree, 19-year-old Nathan Dunlap entered the Chuck E. Cheese an hour before closing and ordered a single ham and cheese sandwich. After finishing, he got up and played the arcade game Hogan's Alley, where he shot bad guys. Moments later, he would play the part of the bad guy in real life. Thirty million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you're among them, just know you're not alone. Although it's a normal and common occurrence, experiencing thinning hair can feel lonely and frustrating. Getting vulnerable about our insecurities and issues can be scary, but you can change the conversation from fear and loneliness to one of solutions and community by joining the thousands of women who are standing up for their strands with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Through whole body health, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth by targeting the five root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. As Nutrafol's powerful ingredients bring your hair back into balance, you may also notice improvements to your overall well-being, including more restful sleep, less stress, and better skin and nails. Nutrafol has three unique formulas to support women throughout all stages of life, 
including postpartum and menopause. Each formula is physician-formulated using natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients in consistently effective dosages so you get the most reliable results. Healthier hair growth takes time, but in a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after just six months. And you don't have to take it from me. Over 3,000 top doctors and stylists recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code MURDERISH to save $10 off your first month subscription. This offer is only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $10 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code MURDERISH. Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with estro control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. Luckily, I found estro control. The formula is designed to make that time of the month a breeze so you can finally feel like yourself again. And for those battling through menopause or perimenopause, Hormone Harmony is here to help. With their science-backed adaptogenic blend, you can conquer hot flashes, low moods, poor sleep, and more. Happy Mammoth, the company behind Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Join the thousands of women who swear by Happy Mammoth's products. It says something that a bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Plus, the adaptogenic blend helps your body adapt to hormonal changes naturally. Whether you're dealing with PMS woes or menopause struggles, Happy Mammoth has you covered. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code MURDERISH at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code MURDERISH for 15% off today. Russell Fultz Smith, an employee of Chuck E. Cheese, recalled thinking that Nathan Dunlap was acting strangely, that he seemed out of place, he told the Denver Post. It was 9.30 on a school night, and Dunlap was all alone. Russell thought he recognized Dunlap, but he couldn't place from where. Dunlap, he would later learn, had worked at the pizzeria as a dough master just months before. He was fired after getting into a dispute with a supervisor over being asked to work hours beyond his scheduled shift. It would later come out in court that Dunlap felt as if he'd been played a fool, and he wanted to get even, according to what he'd told friends. Then, on December 14, 1993, while playing a pickup game of basketball, he decided his mind was made up. According to a witness at trial, Dunlap stated his plans plainly. Go to Chuck E. Cheese, kill them all, and take the money. Even after learning that his former supervisor wasn't even working that night, Dunlap decided to go through with the crime anyway. At some point around 9.50 p.m., 
he went unnoticed into the men's bathroom and waited until the employees locked the doors at 10. He made his exit around 10.05 p.m., gripping the small Colt pistol in his right hand. After killing Sylvia, Ben, Colleen, and Marge, Nathan Dunlap headed for the door. He left behind Bobby Stevens, who, after taking a bullet to the jaw, was smart enough to play dead. With the shooter gone, Stevens hobbled out an emergency door and into the street. The door triggered an alarm that sent police and first responders to the location. Within a few hours, all but Stevens had died. Seemingly unfazed at the abject horror he'd left behind, Dunlap went to the home of a friend, Carl Wilson, to count his stolen money. He asked Wilson to back up his alibi. Then, Dunlap ran to his girlfriend's apartment and the pair began having sex. They were interrupted by an emergency ring on Dunlap's pager. It was his mother, desperately trying to reach him, and she wasn't alone. Carol Dunlap told her son that she was with the police and handed over the phone to an officer. The officer told Nathan he'd been spotted at the Chuck E. Cheese having dinner, and they wanted to ask him a few questions. He agreed, then hung up the phone, washed his hands with hydrogen peroxide, and took a shower. Before leaving, he stashed some of the stolen money in his girlfriend's freezer. Back at his house, only a few blocks from the crime scene, detectives pressed Nathan about the night's events, asked him where he was around 10 p.m., swabbed his hands for gunshot residue, and confiscated his clothes as evidence. They weren't buying Dunlap's story. Twelve hours later, they'd return and make an arrest. The motive for his heinous crime, according to law enforcement, Bitterness over having been fired from the restaurant earlier that year. It was almost impossible to fathom. Within days, 19-year-old Nathan Dunlap was the most hated man in Colorado. The story had made national news, the latest headline amid a tidal wave of violence that was sweeping the country during the early 90s. Family and friends of the victims demanded vengeance for their dead loved ones. Dunlap had shown them no mercy, and they would offer none in return. Sylvia Kroll's friend, Catalina Munoz, told the Denver Post, her eyes welling with tears, We need more Sylvias, not more killers. Sobbing, she said, That stupid job, I hate him. I've never hated anyone in my life. Ben Grant's brother, Joshua, eight years old at the time of the massacre, wrote in an op-ed for the Denver Post years later. During my childhood, Nathan Dunlap became the thing in my nightmares, the monster under my bed, and the evil that threatened to take away the ones I loved. At a time when crime was the political football of the day, Nathan Dunlap was held up as an example of everything wrong in America, a super predator with no remorse for his actions and the young man only seemed to oblige them. While in jail, he'd embraced the nickname Crazy Horse and got a tattoo of a smoking handgun. The puff of smoke above the weapon formed the boundary around four simple words, by any means necessary. 
Many people believed that Nathan Dunlap was just another cold-blooded gangbanger with no regard for human life. In Nathan's case, however, there was more to the story. The truth, which later became clear, was much more complicated. Nathan Gerard Dunlap has described his upbringing as ideal, perfect, very wonderful. In reality, it was anything but. A native of Chicago, Nathan and his two sisters were raised by their mother and adoptive father, Jerry Dunlap, a nearly 400-pound Baptist minister who knew how to throw his weight around. For much of his childhood, he and his older sister, Adinia, were abused, often without provocation, by both parents. Jerry, who'd married Nathan's mother six months before he was born, once threw Nathan down a flight of stairs. Another time, he threatened to beat his son with a heavy metal copy holder. At trial, a witness recounted Jerry pummeling Nathan in a Burger King bathroom and slamming him inside a stall while stunned bystanders looked on. Matters were far worse for Adinia. One day after coming home from school, Nathan went into the basement only to discover his father sexually assaulting his sister. Adinia, trying to shield her brother from further abuse, pretended they were only playing. Jerry Dunlap didn't care. From that day forward, Adinia would later say, Jerry's abuse of Nathan took on a vengeful intensity. After time in Memphis and Detroit, the Dunlaps moved to Colorado in 1984. Nathan was 10 and already acting out his hatred of his father in disturbing ways. Writers Natasha Gardner and Patrick Doyle said in their 2008 story, The Politics of Killing, at home, Dunlap took the blows of this colossal man, but out on Aurora's streets, he was the one inflicting the violence. By the time he was 15, Nathan Dunlap had graduated from minor assaults and burglaries into armed robbery. If he wanted something, he took it, whether by force or fear. Then came the revelation that shook him to his core. A social worker told Nathan that Jerry was not his biological father. Learning that the man whose name he carried, who pounded on him relentlessly from the time he could walk, who sexually assaulted his sister, was not even his real dad, sent Nathan into a rage that never truly subsided. Only after he was arrested for the Chuck E. Cheese killing spree did doctors determine that Nathan Dunlap suffered from bipolar disorder. Marked by episodic mood swings between two poles, mania and depression, the condition often takes over 10 years to diagnose. Nathan Dunlap, as medical professionals would piece together, had a manic episode while in a Pueblo, Colorado jail awaiting trial. On Valentine's Day, 1994, the normally quiet prisoner was reading Bible passages when he suddenly ran to the window and began screaming obscenities. He was then moved into a padded room and placed on suicide watch until his mania finally broke. In the meantime, Dunlap would tear off his clothes and spread excrement on his body and the walls. At that point, 
the Arapahoe County District Attorney's Office had been preparing its case for over a year, and the families of victims were desperate for justice. Suddenly, this manic episode threatened to change everything, as those involved in the case wondered whether Nathan Dunlap was even sane enough to stand trial. After a five-month evaluation, Dunlap and his attorneys gathered with prosecutors in a courtroom for a pretrial hearing. The question at hand, was the Chuck E. Cheese killer sane enough to be put in front of a jury? A defense expert told the judge that during his year-long stay in Pueblo, Dunlap showed regular signs of psychosis. The state's doctor countered by saying Dunlap was faking to avoid punishment. And the judge agreed. On July 8, 1994, the Chuck E. Cheese killer was deemed competent to stand trial. Despite their own experts' evaluation of psychosis, the defense never brought up the matter during subsequent court proceedings. Nathan Dunlap's trial got underway in February of 1996 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Given all the pretrial publicity, the defense had won a change of venue motion to the city about an hour south of Denver. Prosecutors, keeping with the theme of the day, sought to paint the now 20-year-old as a subhuman, a super predator who was willing to shoot five defenseless employees just to get revenge for being fired from a minimum wage job. Their evidence was overwhelming. Deputy District Attorney Jim Peters handled the state's case, peppering the jury with one disturbing detail after the next. Bobby Stevens, who'd survived the bloodbath, testified that there was no doubt in his mind that Nathan Dunlap was the one who'd killed his friends and co-workers. Years later, Stevens, still wearing a small scar on his cheek, recounted the shooting to the Colorado Sun. Reporter John Ingold wrote, he remembers the dishes and the clatter they made when he dropped them to the floor after being shot in the face. He remembers the sight of his co-worker, just a teenager, lying motionless on a blood-soaked floor. He remembers a smile on the killer's face. When we think about recycling, we all know we should be recycling our water bottles and soda cans. But do you ever consider recycling your laundry detergent jugs? Most of us just chuck them into the trash, but we don't consider the environmental impact of that small action. 91% of laundry detergent jugs don't get recycled, and 700 million detergent jugs end up in our landfills every single year. And I know we're not intentionally trying to harm the environment. We're just trying to get our chores over with, and it's not like you can just stop doing laundry. But what you can do is switch to Earth Breeze. Earth Breeze eliminates those big, heavy plastic jugs and replaces them with laundry detergent eco sheets. These eco sheets look just like dryer sheets, but instead, you just toss them into the wash cycle and they'll dissolve, hot or cold. Earth Breeze has really made the concept of detergent better. The packaging is compact, biodegradable, and plastic-free. And there's no sacrifices you have to make when switching to Earth Breeze. 
Their eco sheets will still give your clothes a powerful clean, and they're dermatologically tested and safe for sensitive skin. In fact, they make getting laundry detergent easier than ever because you don't have to leave your house. They offer flexible subscriptions that can be adjusted, paused, or canceled by you at any time without penalty. With their Buy One Give 10 initiative, each purchase donates 10 loads of laundry detergent to a charitable cause of your choice. An impressive 30 million loads of laundry have already been donated. As a busy mom and entrepreneur, I try to multitask as much as possible. So I love that EarthBreeze allows me to do something good for the earth simply by washing my clothes, something I was already doing anyway. Give it a try, and if you don't like it, EarthBreeze will give you a full refund. You don't even have to send it back. They're confident you'll love it just as much as I do. Now's the time to try EarthBreeze, because right now, my listeners can subscribe and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com murderish to get started. That's earthbreeze.com murderish for 40% off. Using the latest slideshow technology, prosecutors displayed gruesome photos of the murdered teenagers for all in the courtroom to see. Gardner and Doyle wrote in their 2008 story, they put the coroner on the stand. He plunged knitting needle-like rods into styrofoam heads to show how a bullet moved through skulls and brains. The prosecution lined these macabre models on a table in the courtroom. A detective even turned on Ben Grant's vacuum cleaner so jurors could hear its whining. The narrative formed by the prosecution, which included nothing of the abuse Dunlap had suffered at the hands of his adopted father, painted the defendant as pure evil. There were those armed robberies at age 15, first with a golf club and later a handgun. After a judge in juvenile court gave him a second chance, Dunlap responded not by staying out of trouble, but by selling drugs and joining a gang. In 1993 alone, he'd been arrested five times on misdemeanor charges prior to the mass shooting inside Chuck E. Cheese. Peters and his team even pointed out Dunlap's pretrial behavior, including an incident where he had torn a leg off a metal desk, sharpened it, and began to scrape away at the window ledge in his cell. Meanwhile, court-appointed public defenders Forrest Boogie Lewis and Stephen Gale presented what could scarcely be described as a defense, needing to persuade a jury that there was reasonable doubt of Dunlap's guilt and, if necessary, do their best to secure the most lenient sentence. The pair did their best with what little they had. The defense made few objections while the state laid out its case over the course of two weeks. Onlookers, who assumed they'd been saving their energy for their own arguments, would be disappointed. In fact, Lewis and Gale didn't even call a single witness, including Nathan Dunlap, who wanted to take the stand in his defense. On February 26, 1996, the jury took less than four hours to find Nathan Dunlap guilty of the murders of Margaret Kohlberg, Sylvia Kroll, Ben Grant, and Colleen O'Connor. Now, all that remained was for the jury to decide whether he would face the death penalty. 
The political makeup of Colorado in 1996 was a far cry from where it is today. Then, a decidedly red state, voters had regularly reiterated their support for the death penalty. And, in the case of Nathan Dunlap, they all but demanded it. To win a death sentence, Prosecutor Peters had to persuade the jury there was an aggravating factor, a detail of the crime that made Dunlap's murders especially heinous. Though they needed just one aggravating factor, Peters presented 28. As for the defense, their mission was simple, convince a single juror to disbelieve the prosecution's assertion that Dunlap was a super predator who coldly murdered four people as revenge. They needed mitigating factors that would not excuse the massacre, but rather explain how a 19-year-old could execute four people and then go have sex with his girlfriend. Colorado had been far more judicious than other states in its application of capital punishment since the Supreme Court confirmed the death penalty was constitutional in 1976. Unlike in Texas and Florida, where murderers had regularly been put to death, jurors in Colorado had the option of sentencing a murderer to life in prison without parole. Juries tend to like this option because they don't have to choose between life and death. With a criminal forever locked behind bars, they can rest their heads at night knowing that society is safe from harm. As a result, not a single person had been put to death in Colorado between 1979 and 1996. Everyone wondered if Nathan Dunlap would be the first. Despite all the horrible things that had been said about him during the trial, Nathan Dunlap kept a steely composure. A roll of the eyes here, a long sigh there, but nothing that approached an outburst, even as prosecutors made him out to be a monster for days on end. That all changed during sentencing, when the victim's families aired the pain, loss, and waste caused by the 1993 murders over the course of two days. Much of their testimony was directed squarely at the killer, who sat only a few feet away in a red jumpsuit. Dennis O'Connor said of his daughter Colleen's murder, I have a hell of a rage in me, Your Honor, and it's not going to go away, but Your Honor could help by sentencing Nathan Dunlap to death as soon as humanly possible. If I could be allowed to attend, I would appreciate it. Melissa McDermott and Rebecca Oakes, the daughters of Margaret Kohlberg, spoke of the love they had for their mother and the devastating effect of her tragic death. Melissa said, I want to be reunited with my mom. I am under a doctor's care and take medication. I find no peace. I didn't think it was possible to hate so much. It is a raw, ugly feeling. Hardly a day goes by that I don't wish I could see her. Nathan Dunlap killed us all. We just didn't die. And then, things took a turn in the courtroom. Nathan Dunlap snapped. He leapt up from his chair at the defense table and launched into a tirade after Sylvia Kroll's brother accused him of killing the Aurora Pizzeria employees because he hated white people. According to the Denver Post, Dunlap yelled, I don't have a problem with white people. 
I got white friends, a white girlfriend, white attorneys. Why do you do that? Then he let loose, telling Kroll's brother, I don't give a fuck about you, your mother, your whole motherfucking family. He continued, kill me right now. I've had enough of this shit. You can take me to the motherfucking little chair and do what the fuck you want. Family members who watched the outburst nearly got into the fray when Dunlap accused the victim's relatives of attacking him and his family. Dennis O'Connor, whose daughter died of a point-blank shot from Dunlap's pistol, clenched his fists and shouted, You attacked us first! The uncomfortable scene lasted for over three minutes as the judge and three bailiffs tried in vain to get the defendant to sit down and end his tirade. The rest of the courtroom sat in stunned silence before Dunlap was hustled from the courtroom. Still cameras captured the whole ugly affair. Dunlap, shackled at the legs and wrists, was allowed to re-enter the courtroom after a 10-minute recess, just long enough to hear the jury's verdict in favor of the death penalty. He would die by lethal injection. At least, that's what the victim's families thought at the time. Just a year after Dunlap's conviction and sentencing, Colorado executed a prisoner for the first time in 30 years. Gary Lee Davis had been convicted in 1987 of the kidnap, rape, and murder of his neighbor, 34-year-old Virginia May. Davis had grabbed May in front of her children, then driven her to the desert, where he sexually assaulted her, then shot her 14 times with a rifle. He was put to death by lethal injection on October 13, 1997. Prison guards used Davis's death to taunt Nathan Dunlap, who was by then a shell of his former self. Guards reminded Dunlap that his last days were looming. As Gardner and Doyle described it in their piece for 5280 Magazine, he would be led to a table where IVs would be threaded into his veins, and he would wait as his heart pushed three poisons into his body. The first would render him unconscious. The second would paralyze him. The final lethal poison would stop his heart. Two short minutes later, he would be dead. As is common among perpetrators on death row, Dunlap exhausted appeal after appeal to extend his life. In 2009, he sued the state's Department of Corrections for cruel and unusual punishment, citing the years he'd been left in isolation. After first representing himself in court, Dunlap handed off his case to the ACLU in 2010, and reached a settlement with the DOC. Under the terms of the deal, Dunlap was relocated from the Supermax Colorado State Penitentiary in Fremont County to the Sterling Correctional Facility, about 120 miles northeast of Denver. While he remained in solitary confinement, Dunlap was afforded the opportunity to exercise five days a week in an area open to the sky and elements a space double the size of the exercise rooms he'd used for 15 years in the state penitentiary. In 2009, the Colorado House of Representatives passed a bill to abolish the death penalty by a razor-thin margin, 
33-32. to 32. That same bill failed the state Senate by a 17-18 to 18 margin. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, the bill would have shifted death penalty prosecution funds to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for the purpose of solving cold cases. There were about 1,400 unsolved murder cases in Colorado at the time, but the Colorado Bureau of Investigation's cold case unit has only one staff member. By the time 2013 rolled around, however, it looked like the clock was running out. It was spring, and Dunlap was due to be executed in August. Nancy Grant, mother of Ben Grant, said at the time to the Denver Post, It needed to be done, and I hope the governor agrees. He didn't. John Hickenlooper, governor at the time, threw Dunlap a last-minute life rope, granting the then 37-year-old inmate a reprieve, indefinitely postponing his execution via executive order. It wasn't clemency, but it meant the killer's execution date had been scrubbed from the calendar. The governor's statement accompanying the reprieve stated, If the state of Colorado is going to undertake the responsibility of executing a human being, the system must operate flawlessly. Colorado's system for capital punishment is not flawless. The governor said his decision was because of larger objections to the death penalty and that he wasn't granting clemency to Dunlap. The move enraged residents around the state, none more than the families of the victims who'd waited over 15 years for justice. It nearly cost Hickenlooper re-election. Fortunately for Dunlap, the politics of the Rocky Mountain state changed dramatically in the years to follow, as did opinions around capital punishment. In 2020, Colorado residents voted to abolish the death penalty for the second time in 123 years, assuring Dunlap would be allowed to live out his years in prison. At the time, he was one of only three men on death row. The same day that he signed the death penalty repeal bill into law, Colorado Governor Jared Polis commuted the sentences of three death row prisoners, Nathan Dunlap among them, to life without the possibility of parole. He said his acts of clemency were not based on humanitarian concerns, but to reflect what is now Colorado law. The commutations, he said, are consistent with the abolition of the death penalty in the state of Colorado and consistent with the recognition that the death penalty cannot be and never has been administered equitably in the state of Colorado. As of the current date, 48-year-old Nathan Dunlap remains in prison. Today, Panera Bread stands in the place of Chuck E. Cheese, which never opened again after the massacre and was demolished two years later. Though the space has been physically wiped away, it lives on in the memories of those former employees who narrowly escaped certain death, none more so than Bobby Stevens. Bobby is still haunted by that life-altering moment. According to the Colorado Sun article, one day, he tried going to his shopping mall, but he couldn't shake the feeling that someone there would shoot him. He watched the hands of everyone who passed by, 
looking for sudden movement. On another occasion, Bobby hit the floor in a 7-Eleven when a child using the air machine out front overinflated his bike tire, resulting in a loud pop. At his lowest point, he attempted suicide. Several years after the killing spree, Bobby decided to conquer his fears and set foot inside of a Chuck E. Cheese again. It was his nephew's birthday, and the restaurant's design and decor had changed so much since his time working there. It all started off well, and then one of the employees started vacuuming the floors, he said, and I lost everything, including my stomach. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and TikTok at Jamie on Air. I recently changed my social media handles from at Murderish Podcast to at Jamie on Air so I can start posting about all of the projects I'm working on in addition to Murderish. You'll still see a lot of Murderish content on my social media, but I've expanded and I'm now also hosting Dirty Money Moves, the podcast. And I'm launching two more podcasts very soon, so stay tuned for that. It just made more sense to change my social media handle in order to post about all of the podcasts I'm hosting and also use my social media as a way to let listeners in on more than just my professional life. So make sure you're following me at Jamie, spelled J-A-M-I, on air at Instagram and TikTok. That's at Jamie on air. Listen up, Murderish fans. If you'd rather listen to the podcast with no interruptions, you can do so by signing up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon. As a patron, you also get access to bonus content, ad-free episodes, and other cool perks. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, visit Murderish.com or just go to Patreon and search for Murderish there. If you need more podcasts to binge, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are a bunch of episodes for you to binge right now. You guys, do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. You can also show your support for the show by wearing a Murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Go to Murderish.com to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Murderish sound design and audio editing is done by Trevin of Live Laugh Larceny Podcast. This episode was researched and written by Kay Brandt. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.